0: Welcome to Rule the World, the and power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life. To help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real measurable results for you and your organization here's your host paul furlong hello and welcome to rule the world the art and power of storytelling i'm your host paul furlong just a quick reminder that my book rule the world master the power of storytelling to inspire influence and succeed is now available You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops including amazon and kindle Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Anyway, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest. Today's guest is Levi Tafari, poet, and urban griot, consciousness raiser, storyteller, newscaster and political agitator. Levi has four collections of poetry published and his work has been included in many anthologies. He has spent two seasons as poet resident the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, and an important element of Levi's work is visiting schools, colleges, universities, and prisons, running creative writing workshops in the hope of inspiring the next generation of performance poets. Levi, great to have you on the show. Welcome.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. Give thanks for the invitation to participate. Oh, you're very
0: welcome. Um, I've given you a little bit of an introduction there. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about
2: Uh, who you are and how you spend your time. Yeah, so Levi Tafari, writer and performer, urban guru, as you say. Um, I see myself as a creator of unity. (laughs) The name Levi means unity. And Tafari is, in terms of Ethiopian name, to be feared, you know, a creator. So a creator of, of unity. And I see myself as being tricultural. So I have an African root with a Caribbean heritage and a British experience. So all of those things make me who I am. And people try and put you in a box, you know, make you monolithic. But I'm more, I am more—I have more to me than just being born and raised in Liverpool. So as I just said, I was born and raised in Liverpool. My parents came from the island of Jamaica. And this has given me access to two cultures. So through life, I have navigated through engaging in both my Caribbean heritage and culture and my British experience of being born and raised in Liverpool. And I'm a writer and performer. I studied classical French cuisine. When I left school and went into the industry, passed with a distinction and then went into the industry. And after a few years, was a little disillusioned by the impact of the American influence and the fast food thing, which came and, you know, to me decimated the idea of cooking from scratch because everything is presented and packaged and sometimes all you have to do is add water or put something in an oven and <laughs> warm it up where I'm used to making a sauce from a roux, making soup from scratch, making my own bread and that type of thing. So I did that for a while. And I used to write when I was at college and I decided that um, yeah, I was going to give the writing a go after I decided to you know, leave catering. So that's kind of my journey. And my first performance was televised. Um, The first performance I ever did, I went to a venue to do a sound check. And there was a, a producer from the BBC there who overheard my poems as I was going through. And he said he wanted to record them for a program that he was doing for the future. So he recorded a poem. Poems, sorry. And then he put the poems out on the program and it kind of just took off from there. You know, that people started contacting me to do performances and talks and workshops and pretty much been able to hold it down. This was about 1983. And then I worked with a drum and dance ensemble called the Lado, which was a Ghanaian drum and dance troupe which came out of the experience of the uprisings in 81. And I was like their poet in residence, but I used to do a bit of drumming and I also used to do um, some dancing also. But my main focus was on the poetry. So this gave the lado a different edge to some of the other drum and dance groups in Britain at the, at the time, because um, when the dancers are going to change, I could, you know, recite some poetry when they were changing costumes and things. So I've worked in many roles, like you say, um, and I've enjoyed, if not all of them, most of them. You know, the, the term urban griot is a reflection of the griot of West Africa, who were, you know, narrators, oral narrators of the tradition. The heritage, the root, the history, the social being, the culture of the people, you know, the savannah grasslands at the time. And they maintained and retained the heritage and the culture and passed it down to the next generation. So, since I wasn't born in a rural setting, <laughs> you know, born in an urban setting, so I use the term urban griot because I'd like to think. That I am um, continuing the, the tradition, but um, in an urban setting.
0: That's amazing. You've you've had such a, a creative life, haven't you? Even the the cooking, uh, there's so much creativity in, involved in, in that. Um, I, I've heard it said about about griots in in West Africa that when a griot dies, it's like a library has burned down.
2: Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, that's that's because they retain. Uh, the history they you know who was born when who is related to who, whom you know they know about um, when a particular tradition started or when a particular story is appropriate for a particular situation all of that you know they are walking libraries and that's why it's important to pass things you know to the next generation so that they can continue with the tradition and keep the foundation you know so yeah that, that's a true statement
0: and it it's a very oral tradition isn't it the, the griot storytelling tradition why 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 is it oral and why is the oral storytelling tradition so important
2: well sometimes when people write things down you know they, they get distorted because people put their interpretation on things, but when you when you talk to someone, you tell someone, you can hear, you know, the connotation in their voice. You can hear the. It's it's like if I said stop, you know, but if I went stop, it has a different connotation, you know. So it is important to speak. It is important. I remember I've worked with Dr. Maya Angelo, um, rest in peace. And she was saying that she was mute for five years. And the thing that got her talking again or speaking again was poetry. Because a teacher told her, if you want to be a true poet, you have to let the words roll off your tongue. And so it is important to speak. It is important to hear the sounds. It's like music. We can write music down on a piece of paper, but we can't hear it on that paper. It needs to be played on an instrument for it to come to life. And it's the same, that's why I wrote the poem that the tongue was the very first instrument. <laughs> you know, because the tongue plays music, it plays words, it plays sounds. So, you know, in, in hip-hop you have beatboxing where they use their tongues to create a sound. So it's important to speak. And that whole thing of when we speak, we use our breath. And breath is life. So it's all in there. It's important to hear it out loud rather than, you know, just have things written on a piece of paper or on stone.
0: <laughs> and you spent some time um, at, at a greer school in the Gambit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your time
2: there? Yeah, we went to, um, I went with Madeline Hennigan from Writing on the Wall, and we went over to investigate the Griot tradition. I met quite a few Griots, um, whose, if I'm honest, their names escape me at the moment. It was because this was a, uh, about three years ago. Yeah, about three, four years ago we went. And there were various griots um, who were continuing the tradition. We actually went to a school Um, worked with one of the griots. He told us about the tradition. He had pupils there who were studying the tradition in a big compound. And they made us some food and, you know, were very hospitable. And so... When I recited some of my work, he said, yeah, this is the griot tradition, Levi. So the both of us linked together, and I chanted a poem, recited or performed a poem, and he put some music to it. And it was fantastic. You know, the uh, another griot we met was touring at the time, and he was just about to embark on a big tour of Europe. Uh, and again, everywhere you go, you see the griots, you, you see um, people playing the kora, which is one of the instruments, a 26 string instrument, um, which is made from a calabash. And they can be really elaborate. So they play the kora, and they play drums and they chant and tell stories. So when Madeline and I went to the compound, the Griot school, yeah, they gave us a performance. And it was so uplifting. And, you know, these people were so humble, but so important to the society. Their role, you know, is second to none. Well, maybe to the chief or the king or queen, but, you know, they're very important. And I learned this from the Griot school that I went to.
0: And what what, what was your one main takeaway from your time spent with the Griots there in the Gambia?
2: Is how knowledgeable they are on their culture and life, you know, the the wisdom and the integrity of these people. Because, again, they're just humble, but they're so important and they recognise their place within society. And they live up to their role, so you know the honesty and integrity uh, of of humanity. Because that's what the griot is about—about about a human expression, about life, which is why it needs to be heard rather than read.
0: So they're they're powerful people within their society, aren't they? They have a lot of influence.
2: Oh, they have a lot of influence because no banquet, no. No, you know, celebration is complete without a griot. It, it's like having a party and not having any music. <laughs> Wouldn't be much of a party, really.
0: And it's amazing to have that kind of influence, as you've just said. Um, they wield it with such humility and such integrity, and yet in the in the West, I've been talking with uh, I was talking with John Egan on a, a previous episode. Uh, who's a political uh, communicator, uh, and I was talking with Uri Hassan, um, who's was, who was talking similar, uh, particularly in, in the developed world or the so-called developed world, um, a lot of the storytellers don't take their influence and their ability with stories um, with the same seriousness. They use their power and their um, ability with stories for uh, for the wrong reasons. They use it to manipulate people. Yeah. Um, and, and these Grios have have the same power, the same influence, but they they seemingly use it for the right reasons and, and with integrity.
2: Yeah. Well, in the Western world, everything's about economics, you know, everything, they they you know, poli- politics is the management of economics. So we pay our taxes, we pay insurance. You know, we contribute to this, we contribute to that. They take the funds and they just make legislation and distribute it. So a lot of the industry, it's it's like football. It's it's like the um, European Super League recently. You know, everyone was saying it wasn't about football. It wasn't about sports. It was about economics. But the thing is, is that all aspects of life at the moment is about economics you know, even down the church, you know, the archbishop, the archbishop's position, you know, it's, it, they say it's a vocation, but no, it's an occupation, you know, and, and they talk about it in those terms. So once you, once you kind of commercialize things, it takes a different role. So again, with sports, Sport was about, you know, shaking hands and fair play and all of this and that. And now, because it's about economics, it's about money, clubs making as much money as they can to make big transfers to get a better position, then not that it necessarily becomes corrupt, but it becomes dubious. You see what I'm saying? And even Boris said it recently that the reason why the Western world has done so well during this pandemic is because of capitalism and greed. And then he had to take back talk, you know? He had to (laughs) withdraw the statement or redact the statement. And the same man came out and was cursing the European Super League of being greedy. And he had stated, A week previous, that greed was one of the mechanisms that made them successful. So, this is what I'm talking about. So, I can see what the writer was saying um, about storytellers in this kind of setting, you know, not concerned about their role from a spiritual or, you know, even a morality point of view. It's more about just. Yeah, making an impact and getting a better position in society, which means being of a certain economic standing. And to the griots, you know, it's not necessarily about that. And and the same with Black culture in general. You know, we've always created in terms of we mightn't have had any backing or foundation, but we do it anyway. So no one commissioned Jamaica to create reggae music. Jamaica just created it. You know, let's say if you look at the guys who sang the blues, they did have the blues, but they created an ex. they used that experience to create a genre, a feel that they could share with the world. And then that gets hijacked, <laughs> commercialized, and we don't get paid. But somebody else gets paid, and that's the way it's always been. That's that's why Barry Gordy set up Motown, you know, because African Americans weren't get recognition for the works they were producing. Somebody else would get it, you know. Um, singing singing dear songs, but in dear style, <laughs> people like Bing Crosby come to mind, <laughs> you know. And when you had people like Chuck Berry doing their thing, and then some of their songs get banned or don't get played on the radio. So, yeah, so it's a different vibe.
0: Yeah. And so um, it's important, isn't it, when you've got the power of the influence and the, the power of the, um, the, the story that, you, that you're using it for the right reasons and in the, in, in the, in the right place. Um, as, yeah. as the Griots are doing and as some people in politics are doing and um, as some people in, in every walk of life do um, and not using
2: it for as you say, power, greed um, for yeah. um, because, because a lot of the stories that the Griots tell have a moral you know to those stories, so if you look at um, how the pig got its flat nose and its short curly tail <laughs> It's about why people shouldn't argue, because when people argue, they get hurt. And the pig didn't have a flat nose to start off with, according to the story, and had a long tail. And due to a disagreement with the cow, (laughs) which I won't go too deep into the story, but the pig ends up getting hurt by its tail being snapped in half and its nose getting pushed into its face and becoming flat, you know, and the story is that if you argue like the cow and the pig, you'll end up like the pig getting hurt with a flat nose and a short curly tail grunting meaninglessly. <laughs> so, so there's always a moral to it, you know. Um, there's a good one about the, the crocodile and the chicken. And the crocodile wants to eat the chicken. But all the chicken wants to do on the riverbank is to collect corn and collect, you know, something to eat for her chicks. And the crocodile wasn't having any. So it took the rabbit as a mediator to say to the crocodile, Well, you you and the chicken are related. And the crocodile is like, Well, how can we be related? Because you know, the chicken's got feathers, it can fly, it's a bird, you know, it clucks. I'm a crocodile, I've got, you know, scaly skin, I'm tough, I live in the water, I've got big, sharp teeth. And so the rabbit took the crocodile to look into the chicken's nest. And when the crocodile looked into the chicken's nest, the crocodile saw eggs. <laughs> and then the, the, the rabbit took the, um, crocodile back to the crocodile's nest and says look in there and what do you see and the crocodile saw eggs (laughs) and the crocodile and so the the moral is we might look completely different but we have the same roots they're from the same source so stories like that the griot would tell you know to bring forth unity and show diversity and you know coming from one root
0: that's brilliant and and again that that just puts them in such a, a powerful position doesn't it to um, bring people together or to do the opposite if they're uh, if they're not careful
2: so yeah. and what what's nice is that the, the Griots were accessible as well you know so they weren't just in one part of town or stuck somewhere you know it, it's like if we wanted to get close to someone who you know was of a standing. You would have to make an appointment. You have to make, the, but they come to the people, you know. So yeah, it's just, it's just like I said, different mindset and a different way of perpetuating the same thing.
0: That's brilliant, um, and it's great that you've taken on that mantle of uh, of an urban grio, um, so that you can bring the same things um, and the same the same service uh, to your to your urban environment. And um, that's, uh, that's brilliant. So, so talking off, talking off stories, obviously, one of the, the main um, things that, that you write or the main type of writing that, that you do is poetry. Um, so, so tell me about how you incorporate storytelling within your poetry.
2: But well, I will look at a situation and check it from a particular angle and say, see what I want to say. And rather than, excuse me, rather than making things abstract, I will use the poem to tell the story of what it is I want to say. So we'll have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I will use images to create, you know, use the words to create images, to paint pictures in people's minds. And so it takes you on a journey. So, for instance, there's a poem called um, Anchored, and it's about when my parents came to Britain, you know, and they were invited to come to Britain. People just think, you know, Caribbean rolled up on these shores to take food out of British people's mouths or English people's mouths. And the idea is just ludicrous because the Caribbean, particular islands were part of Britain you know, through as a colony, you know, although some of them have since gained independence, but they were part of the fabric of Britain. You know, Britain took sugar from the Caribbean to build up Britain, to boost the economy and make certain merchants rich beyond the wildest dreams. So that's a connection. And so the poem... Um, Enoch Powell was talking about rivers of blood. If black people come, it's going to be problematic. But yet still, when white British people in the Caribbean, that wasn't seen as being problematic, even though they were abusing them and taking advantage of the labour, and they weren't getting props. (coughs) Excuse me. So the poem. It's like my mother and my father left from Jamaica, said that they move into Britain where the grass is greener. Them did hear said the streets they were paved with gold, but them never realized it would be grey and cold. They get an invitation from the British government. It was the promise of security and employment in this new Jerusalem. They had hopes and dreams, achieving all they could through the ways and means they had. Faith in the country, faith in the city. Grand ideas that they ride, would be pretty. But little did they know, hey, things would be hard because they had dark skins and came from abroad. So within that first verse, you can hear the story, isn't it? That my parents came from somewhere else. They came from Jamaica to Britain, you know, where they thought that things were going to be better. Because when the British were in Jamaica, they didn't really treat the people right. You know, the people were still poor. They left, they came out of slavery and then went into kind of colonialism and then from colonialism into neo-colonialism and new colonialism, and just stuff a part of the Commonwealth but still wasn't getting any props until Jamaica had enough and said, we want our independence. And August of 1962, they gained that independence. So my parents came to Britain in 57, which was before independence, which meant that they were still British citizens or British subjects. But when they arrived, they weren't treated like British subjects. So that's why I had to write that poem, that they came, but they were invited, you know, you know, they get an invitation from the British government. It was the promise of security and employment. So they extended the Hong Kong. Britain is building up. You know, the wars just ended. 1945. We're moving now somewhere different. We're hoping to develop again. They couldn't do it on their own. So they brought people in from the empire yeah, to do the work. You know, so so that's how then you know. And my parents had faith in the country, faith in the city, grand ideas that the ride, as I put it, or the experience would be pretty. But little did they know that things would be hard because they had dark skins and they came from abroad. And when you look on it, you know the government even in this 21st century. What have they done? They've sent a lot of Caribbean people to the Caribbean. And I'm not even saying back to, because some of them have never been to the Caribbean, but just through association, because they burned papers and done whatever documents, there's no proof now. So it's like if you went to shop and bought something and I burnt the receipt and you needed to take that item back, how are you going to argue your case? And that's the situation. This is, and we're talking 21st century. We're talking 2020. This, you know, has been happening, and is even happening this year. And it's just crazy. And what's interesting, I'm wondering if they're moving, going to be political now on your on your podcast, but whether they're moving the Caribbean people out so they can bring the people in from Hong Kong, who they say are being persecuted make room for the people from Hong Kong and get rid of Caribbean people. And what's interesting is that Britain made a lot of its wealth through West Africa, the Caribbean, and India, you know?
0: Um, So will you write a sequel, do you think, to your anchor poem, given what's going on at the moment?
2: Um. But it kind of says, I mean, the rest of the poem kind of talks about kind of what's going on. So, you know, casting their anchor was an act of faith, holding on to the roots that was no debate. The foundation delayed it was an act of trust. Unity in the community is a must. Love, life, laughter, laughter from fond memories of home. Now with blood, sweat and tears. Now they're here on their own. Integration can be a stumbling block as the anchor of my people remains firm in the dark. They had faith in the country, faith in the city. Grand ideas that they ride, it would be pretty. But little did they know, hey, things would be hard because they had dark skins and came from abroad. The people colonised by the British Empire came from the Caribbean, Africa, China, and Asia. They ventured to Britain to get a piece of the pie, but they had no idea it would be way up in the sky. They enjoyed the experience through staying power. Through culture and religion, they were staying together. They brought many gifts. Now watch them unfold. Britain is now a multicultural rainbow. What a sight to behold they had. Faith in the country, faith in the city, grand ideas. Yes, the ride it would be pretty, but little did they know that things would be hard because they had dark skins and came from abroad. Brilliant. So you can hear the development of that story, you know, reinforced by the chorus, which reminds you, of why the situation is the way it is.
0: And so when you're when you're sitting down to first start a poem, what does your planning process look like?
2: Well, the thing about what I want to say, I use what I call the five eyes, which is inspiration, ideas, imagination, information. And imagery. So you get your inspiration, which then gives you the idea. Then you use your imagination and whatever information you can gather to create the right imagery. So if I want to say something, I would kind of almost write ideas and keywords though So it'd be like going to the shop and buying ingredients. Yeah to make a cake or to make a loaf of bread. And I would gather those ingredients, so maybe yeast, you know, flour, a bit of salt, you know, and uh, <laughs> my utensils there. And it's the same with the poem. So with that particular poem, I was thinking about what the experience was like from stories my parents have told me about the journey here and then what it was like once they arrived here, and what why they came, and what they wanted to contribute, but were hindered through the isms and schisms that they encountered, that stopped them from perpetuating what they wanted to fulfill. Yeah. So so that's how I would do it, and then I would think of the tone and the mood of the poem. Is it gonna be celebratory, you know? Is it gonna be a protest poem? Is it gonna be a romantic poem? So it's it's like my poem, Melanin. I didn't wanna talk about black and white. I just wanted to talk about people as people because we're all melanated. It's interesting when I hear this term, people of color, as if white people aren't of color or people who are classified as white. Because if you've got blonde hair and blue eyes, to me, they're two colors. (laughs) So, how you're not of color? Some some white people have ginger hair and green eyes. Some have, you know, auburn hair or, you know, mousy hair and brown eyes. Some people have gray eyes. You know, people have different skin tones. If you look at your Nordic people compared to um, those, in the kind of um, southern Europe, like, you know, Sicily, you know, um, places like Portugal, Spain, have a different complexion to people from Norway, you know what I mean, Denmark, (laughs) and those places, but still classify themselves as white. So in the poem Melanin, it was like, to get the idea across, it had to have a romantic tone to it. The mood was one of romance to get the idea. So, melanin, I love you. You mean so much to me. Oh, melanin, your beauty is far richer than the eye can see. My melanin embraces me from my head down to my toes. Oh, I would never forsake you. This I want to. To know. You lie with me when I sleep at night. You guide me through the day. You take me to a higher height. I love to watch you play. I often face verbal abuse when you're out with me. Some people haven't got my melanin, so they show their jealousy. But no matter what they say or do, it won't stop me from loving you, my melanin, precious melanin, the pigmentation of my skin and the reason why i wrote that poem was i was standing in a post office one day um local post office and there was a mother young mother and her little girl the little girl must have been about maybe four or five and she turned around the little girl looked at me and she smiled and then she kept turning around and as we're moving closer to the counter (laughs) She must have plucked up the courage to ask her mom, Mom, why is that man's face brown? And the mom was vexed <laughs> and started to rag the little girl. And Well, not seriously rag her, but, you know, don't say that. Chastise her. And I said to her, you shouldn't chastise her. You should explain it to her. And she said to me, I don't know what to say. And I said to her, well, tell her about melanin. And she said to me, what's melanin? She didn't have a clue what melanin was. And I just said to the little girl, I've been kissed by the sun, which she she loved the idea. Oh, mommy's been kissed by the sun. Isn't that great, this little girl? And so I thought to myself, I've got to write the poem to let people know what melanin is. And it's interesting because it works on personification, but to make it work, it had to be romantic. So I had to set melanin up as a person and then talk about this person in an affectionate way, you know, in a loving, embracing way. And the only way to do so, like I say, was to personify rather than talking about black and white and, you know, in between and this, that, and the other. I thought I'll write the poem melanin. And it's interesting when I go into schools and talk about melanin, whenever I perform the poem, I don't, set it up so I tell the students what it's about. I just do it cold. I'm before I and ask and tell me what melanin is in the poem. And they always think it's my wife or my girlfriend or a lover, which is interesting. And I say, well, no, not really. And then when I tell them what melanin is, they're really shocked. You know, that it's the pigment in our skin, the thing that gives us our skin tone the colour of our hair and the colour of our eyes, and that everything of colour has melanin. So when we cut an apple and we expose it to the air for a little while, the, the white flesh starts to turn brown, you know, and it's the melanin coming through. And then I'll ask them to tell me, can they think about since they think it's a woman, can they think of a woman's name that sounds like melanin? And they will say, Melanie. And then when I explain to them that Melanie is a Greek name that means a dark woman, it kind of makes sense to them. You know, so so that's kind of how, how I work anyway. You know, depending on what I want to say, and how I want to say it, I will go through that process.
0: That's a that's an amazing poem, a fantastic story um in the post office.
2: And I love that. Book. Oh, yeah. I mean stuff happens all the time and I'm not always offended by things because I wasn't offended when the little girl because she was just being curious she wanted to know and it's interesting when you say you know I'm curious about some people always go oh curiosity kills the cat but at least the cat died knowing very true
0: very
2: true. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's better to die knowing than die not knowing, isn't it? So that little girl, hopefully, would have grown up now. Because the, the poem, Melanie, I think I wrote that around 1990 or something like that. So it's an old poem. And she'd probably be, what, 20 years on. <laughs> See, yeah, the, yeah, even 30 years on. So she might have even heard that poem somewhere.
0: You may even have been into her school and performed
2: it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and maybe the mom knows what it is now as well. Maybe she's looked it up or googled it, as people say. Yeah, yeah. but things like that. Uh, my my, that's the inspiration. And the, so the so the incident was the inspiration. The idea was to write a poem. I used my imagination and the information I had rather than writing about black and white, which necessarily wouldn't have been a bad thing, but I think writing about melanin, which is closer to who we are. Because even through word, sound and power, I use the idea of the word hue, H-U-E, which means of colour. And if you put man to it, we get human, which is people of color. This is this is what I'm saying. And I know the etymology of that word is not correct because it comes from um, yeah, homo and, but you know, um yeah, when when you use a word pound, word sound of power, then we can do things like this, yeah. So yeah, human, man, man of color, person of colour. And again, it's just being creative and playing with words to enhance the story or the poem. So, within Rastaf- Rastafari vocabulary, we don't say we understand things, we say we overstand things. Because if you're over something, you get a better view than if you're under it. <laughs> yeah. So, we overstand things, you know, rise above them to, digest them and take them in, yeah.
0: Very wise. Takes us back to the group that we were talking about right at the beginning.
2: Exactly, and that's the thing, the power of words. Because people say, well, you can't use that word because it's a made-up word. Anything. well, all words are made up. <laughs> no one is born with a vocabulary. No one is born with words. We're born with sounds. Mama, papa. Mama, papa, which the griots use again with the drum sound. the first rhythms you play or beats you play, mama, papa, mama, papa, male drum, female drum, and then when you look into it, it's the heartbeat, bodum, 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 which is the foundation of everything. Mama, papa, mama, papa, bodum, bodum, bodum. Boom, and there you go. Amazing.
0: Well, I've, I've got a few quick fire questions to ask you, Levi. Before, okay. We,
2: I'll keep my answers short because <laughs> because I, I can talk for England, Jamaica, Nigeria.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. I really do appreciate you, you t- taking the time to um, to share your stories and and your wisdom with us. Um, so let, let's let's have a look and see. Um, what your answers are to these quick fire questions that, that I ask all of the guests on, on the podcast. Okay. So, um, who do you think of when you hear the word story? And why do you
2: think of that person? I would think of my mum because my mum used to tell us stories. And she used to sit us down in front of her. Sometimes when she was patting our hair, and she'd be telling us rolling calf stories from Jamaica. She'd tell us Anansi stories about you know, Kwaku Nancy, the Spider-Man. And if anyone's not familiar, look them up, man. Some fantastic stories, yeah. So I always think of mom when I think of storytelling, primarily, and there's other storytellers that I like, but my mom was the main one and that was the way she instilled, you know, Jamaican culture and heritage into us,
0: yeah. And can you recommend any good books or websites or blogs or podcasts about storytelling that, that we can go and look up?
2: Um, there's a there's a brother named Toop, T-U-P-P, if you put Toop's name in. Fantastic storyteller. There's a great storyteller, um, brother Nzinga, you know, Winston Nzinga, who works with... Brother and Zinga, Jamaica. Currently between Gambia and Britain at the moment. But Brother and Zinger, you know, um, Winston and Zinger, fantastic storyteller. He plays drums and he works with a with a, um, an English woman, English sister. I, I can't remember her name, but they have they had a or have a a, a group or a a company called Yaman Potatoes, <laughs> which the yam is Caribbean and the potatoes is British. I mean, even though we know potatoes come from Peru, but <laughs> originally. But um, those both of them would be good to look up. There's a lot more. Um, there, there are storytellers with the Windows Project. You know, so if you go to the Windows Project, which is based in Liverpool. Um, yeah, some some good storytellers with the Windows Project, some good writers. Um, John Hughes is one person within Windows that writes some fantastic stories. And, and again, Liverpool on Merseyside, we're known for our literary prowess, you know, produced so many writers, you know, Brian Patton, Roger McGough, Adrian, Adrian Henry, you know, um, Jimmy McGovern. Alan Bleasdale, Willie Russell, you know, Linda Lapland. I mean, the list goes on, isn't it? There's just plenty of, plenty of writers on Merseyside.
0: Yeah. Pl- plenty of writers, all of them brilliant. Um, and, and finally, Levi, where can we find out more about you? What, where, where's your, what's your website? Where are you on social media?
2: My, my website is um, right dot net yeah and I'm on I'm on Twitter which is at Levi Tafari poet and then I also have Facebook as well which is just Levi Tafari but to be to be fair I'm not a big social media I don't put things out every day Um, you know it takes something special (laughs) excuse me for, for I to put something out because a lot of the time, I'm not even as a boss, I'm too busy doing other things to be sitting, you know, in front of a computer or on my phone doing the social media thing. Yeah. But I'm, that that doesn't mean I'm cursing it because some people need that. But uh, I seem to get along well with, you know, <laughs> minimalizing my use of it.
0: Absolutely. And, uh you're not the first one you're not the first one to say that either Levi um, we've had other people say exactly the same so listen Levi it's been brilliant listening to all of your wisdom listening to your storytelling Uh, I really appreciate appreciate you no it's been
2: a pleasure man you're welcome and I look forward to speaking to you very soon okay then Paul give thanks good luck and all power to you with all what you're doing keep up the good work and keep the fires burning One love, one heart, one destiny. Thank you, Levi. You're welcome.
0: Just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed, is now available. You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All the World. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time.